As was mentioned earlier this morning, we're so thankful to be able to be gathered in, we, in the way that we are today. As I look over the audience and see our membership at Pippin, we're so thankful, of course, for each and every one of you and for the visitors that have come our way. We're always happy to have you, and we hope that you'll find our service here encouraging, edifying, and really promoting the development of godliness within you. As you probably have already noticed, the title of the lesson today on the wall to my left centers around a building, a church building. And in fact, it was just mentioned a moment ago, and even in the context of our prayer, that we here at the Pippin Congregation have some exciting considerations, not only now, but in the months that are ahead of us. And this lesson today, I hope, will answer some questions and maybe rest in your mind and mine some considerations that I think will be very significant as we consider this work a little bit more carefully. I'd like you to begin with me like this. These introductory statements on that slide. As you know, it is the judgment of the eldership as well as our congregation at large that we have grown to the point that this building no longer meets the needs of this group of people in the way that we would wish it to do. And therefore, consideration has already been given the drawing of, of some plans of a new auditorium. Now, not to tear this one down, of course, but an additional building, one that could be used to, for a larger auditorium for the purpose of worship, for the purpose of some of the things we're going to study about this morning. But I would submit to you, and it is certainly no exaggeration, that as you give thought to a new building, an auditorium like this that we're considering, two immediate things come to mind, one of which is the inconvenience that will surround it. Once the construction begins, there will be, of course, several months in which the parking lot's going to be in a very different position in the sense that it's going to be rough and difficult. While that new building is constructed, there's going to be a little inconvenience on entrance and exit of this one. In addition to that, there's the cost of it. We all know how expensive it can be to build a structure, and certainly one that size will have its cost, to be sure. And therefore, at the bottom of that slide, what about this? Does the Bible have anything to say about a church building? Does the Word of God have any thoughts that can help you and me appreciate that such would be consistent with the will of God? We're going to study about that this morning, and I hope that as you use your Bible to turn to some passages with me, we're going to study about the reality of a church building. As we do that, we'll be reminded of so many truths along the way, but why don't we begin by carefully trying to state the problem, or maybe I should say the question. I've tried to put it all on this slide. We each know so thoroughly and so very well as students of the Word of God how important it is to appreciate authority. That is to say, heavenly authority for that which you and I do in the name of God. To state that rather carefully. There was an occasion in Mark chapter 11 when Jesus Himself was asked a question. It was a, a question about something religious. In particular... It, of course, had to do with the way Jesus had overturned the money changers' tables and things like that. But we each remember that out of that conversation came this question. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Only two options. The baptism administered by John the Baptist, the baptism that he himself preached and he himself performed, did he have heavenly authority for it, or was it only of men? 
and forevermore that etches in your mind and mind the fact any religious activity, in terms of its authority, it either comes from men or it comes from God. As you and I think about that development, we know full well that passages like Colossians 3.17 challenge us to appreciate that we cannot be pleasing to God without proper respect for His authority. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. As Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, echoing the thought, whatever you say and whatever you do, church in Colossae, whatever you choose to pursue, the way in which you pursue it, make sure that it is by the authority vested by nature of what God has presented Today, you and I are in exactly that same position. Pippin Church of Christ, we never want to do anything without proper heavenly authority. No wonder then that has much to say about our consideration of a church building. Is it consistent with God's will that we give thought to building a new building? Would that be a wise investment considering the way the New Testament presents these kinds of things? As you'll notice about the middle of that slide... This thought that is so often resting on our mind, of course, is one that has been a very central part of the Restoration plea. We each remember that there was a very great series of problems, such confusion resting in the minds of men on earth following that Reformation movement. And the time came that there were precious individuals who recognized that we need to do Bible things in Bible ways and call Bible things by Bible names. And of course that has been your desire and mine because we want to always do things the way God would have it to be done. No wonder then as you come to the bottom of that slide, let's now be specific. If we're going to do Bible things in Bible ways and call Bible things by Bible names, what about a church building? Has God given us the authority to use money from a church treasury to build a building? Has He given us the authority in His Word such that we could have rest assured that He would give His stamp of approval to us considering the building of a new building? As we study about that this morning, I hope we'll each be mindful of the interesting features of not only authority, but the way in which it's expressed in the Bible. Let's continue onward in our journey then as follows. In what way does God authorize things? As you and I read through those 27 books of the New Testament and desire to make proper application to today, how does God authorize things? Could I ask you to develop a few thoughts with me? It is certainly the case that in the Word of God, He makes very specific statements on occasion about how things must be done if they're to please Him. However, isn't it also true, as we shall see in some examples, that there are occasions in which that authority is represented and expressed in ways that still allow some consideration on the part of those who obey it. Let's be specific like this. Consider with me for a moment the Passover of ancient Israel. As you and I read through the Old Testament and arrive at Exodus chapters 7 and following, we find the people of God in a very dire set of circumstances, namely in Egyptian captivity. One plague after another was brought, and that culminated in the tenth plague in which the firstborn died 
all who in fact were in houses or dwelling places without blood on the doorpost and lintel. At this point, we remember God had stated some additional things to the children of Israel. You kill a lamb or perhaps a goat. On the 14th day of the month, and in fact, as you prepare it, you roast it. Now, you can't boil it, and you can't do other things with it. You've got to fix it by roasting it. That's what God said. Furthermore, He said, you partake of it with shoes on your feet, staff in your hand, and your loins girt about. You take it in haste. You'll notice He furthermore specified bitter herbs, unleavened bread, Fruit of the vine was to be used in that particular service, that Passover celebration. It's easy to see, isn't it, that God was rather specific. Notice it had to be either lamb or goat. Couldn't be a bullock, couldn't be a turtle dove, couldn't be anything else. He also said you had to use bitter herbs and unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. You also, of course, appreciated have to have shoes on my feet, staff in my hand. All those things are rather specific. But did you notice there are other things about which God didn't specify? How much fruit of the vine? A quart? Pint? Teaspoonful? He didn't say. That was left for the individual consumer, if you please. You might also appreciate how much unleavened bread? One piece? Half a loaf? He didn't say. Isn't it interesting that even in this ancient example we have, there were certain elements of that which were very carefully specified, but others were not. What about a second example? The Noah's Ark. As we read in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, we recall that rather overwhelming scene in which God had appreciated the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, verses 8 and 9. It was in that same condition, though, that we notice God proceeded to say some very interesting things to Noah. Noah built an ark, 300 cubits, the length of it. We appreciate furthermore, 30 cubits, the height of it, 50 cubits, the width of it, three stories, one door, pitched within and without. God was specific in certain things, wasn't He? Noah was not left to make it out of anything besides gopher wood because that's what God said. He also wasn't permitted to do two stories or four or five stories. It had to be three. That's what God specified. One door is all there was. Now, might I ask some questions? There were certain other features, though, that God didn't specify. How wide was the door? Six feet, eight feet, ten feet, we don't know. Might we ask, what size hammer did Noah use? We don't know. God apparently left that to his discretion as a construction person, able to bring about the construction in the most efficient and best way. You probably can tell then when God made these two examples of commandments, certain features were specified, but some were left to the discretion of those that were obeying it. At that point, might we come to one more? In the heart of the New Testament, that passage often known as the Great Commission, we perhaps read Mark's version in Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 15. 
Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Some interesting prescriptions there, some of which are very specific. Have to go, the Lord said to. Well, what do I do when I get there? He said, preach. Well, what do I preach? He said, the gospel. Those are pretty specific. We are not left to question or doubt them, but isn't it true? There's a number of others that are left to us. How am I to go? Can I walk? He didn't say. Can I take a car? He didn't say. Can I take a plane, a ship, a boat, a train? He didn't say. Any of those could be utilized and fulfill that command, couldn't they? But now, when I arrive there, I must preach only the gospel. I can't preach the New York Times. I can't preach Aesop's fables. I can't preach the latest physics news. That won't work. Isn't it amazing that in any of these commandments, there has been a combination of God's specifics together with the appreciation of some latitude in the part of those who obeyed them. I would say that as we come near the close of that slide... It is exceedingly important then as we appreciate any command that God has given that we follow His commandments as He's given them and not legislate for Him. God has said what He meant and He meant what He said. No wonder then in 2 John verses 9, 10, and 11 we are expressly taught that we must never ever legislate for God. And therefore, when we take His commandments, it would be wrong for us to put into that the specifics that God did not and expect that God would demand it of others. That's our will, not His. We're going to apply this principle, of course, to a church building. And why don't we proceed to do that at this moment? Remember, we're asking, has God given the authority for the construction of a church building? As you come to the top of this slide, it's very vital that we give some thought to what the church is. I say that because there are times I fear we often perhaps fail in this. As you and I read through the New Testament in particular, we find an amazing consideration of that body known as the church. To be very specific about it, isn't it true that the New Testament helps us appreciate the fact that the church is the people who are called out of the world, called out of fellowship with the devil, into a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the church. Case in point, as you look at all of that, the church is not the building. Maybe that's almost evident, but it bears repeating. The church is not the building. The church is you and me. The church are human beings, again, who dwell in faithful covenant relationship with God through Jesus. I would suggest, though, that that means we ought to be careful about the way we employ language. Sometimes maybe we, though we know better, we might well give others the wrong impression. If I were to make the statement, I've got to go to the church to pick up some papers, I'm giving the impression the building is the church if I say that. The building is not the church. I ought to say I need to go by the church building to pick up some papers. Or maybe I make the statement, when Sunday comes, I'm going to church. That's not right either. I am the church every day of the week, and I don't just go on Sunday. 
perhaps we ought to be very mindful and not use our language incorrectly. The building is not the church. The building just happens to be the place where the church assembles. It just happens to be the place in which the church gathers. But the building isn't the church. No wonder then, in light of that, could we ask, So, with regard to the church, what is one specific thing God has commanded to assemble? The church is specifically told in the New Testament it's supposed to assemble. I've asked you to look at several verses, and why don't we look at these one by one? We might well start, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following. Matt read that in our hearing earlier. On that very day that the church began. Isn't it a marvelous thing to keep in mind that it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. Where did they do this? They apparently had assembled. And they did so, of course, by the very great authority and precious matter of the God of heaven. In fact, two verses later in Acts 2.44, reference was made that they came together. In Acts chapter 20, verse number 7, Paul on that occasion, as he had the privilege of assembling with the saints in Troas, how did he do that? They had come together. And they did so to take the Lord's Supper. You furthermore will notice in other passages like 1 Corinthians 14, verses 23 and 26. There, as Paul addressed the church in Corinth, it says, When ye come together, the church assembled. Notice that Paul didn't rebuke them for assembling because that was a part of what God expected of them. Maybe all of those verses are preparatory for this one. Hebrews 10.25 says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Not only were there these examples of brethren, the church that assembled, but there is a direct commandment to not ever forsake it. You and I appreciate then it is the will of God that the church assemble. It's the will of God that we as a community and family of believers come together. Now the question comes... Where do we meet? If we're going to come together, we have to come together somewhere. Where is this place that we assemble? Well, let's again look in the New Testament. Where did first century brethren meet? Let's begin to look at a few specific cases. In Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and following, in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 and following, we there have a record of an interesting place of meeting. In those early days of the church, specifically, you'll notice, they were assembled at the temple there in Jerusalem. And as those Jews responded to the gospel, there they were. It was such that they became New Testament Christians while assembled at the temple in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 3, verse 1, it was Solomon's porch again where Peter preached that amazing description and healed that lame man. But one more time, that particular sermon was delivered that day at the temple in Jerusalem. So we began to notice there were brethren that apparently assembled, and they did so in a consideration of that very special construction, constructed building in Jerusalem. Now that's just the first example. Look at another one with me, please. You'll notice that in Acts 13, as well as Acts 18, here is a description of first century brethren who were far removed from Jerusalem. They met in a synagogue. 
Now, synagogues were Jewish houses of worship. And then as much as the Jews assembled in them, you'll notice that even Gentiles were privileged to make use of them in the closing verses of Acts 13. Amazingly enough, here was it a separate location. Early in the book of Acts, it had been in Jerusalem. Now, it was in these far distant places, some even as far as Asia Minor. What about a third case? In Acts chapters 18 and 19, specifically Acts 19, we have there the reference of another specific location in which brethren assembled. And this one really captures their attention, it seems to me, because it was the school of Tyrannus. Now, when you think about a school building, we're well aware of what takes place. Children or perhaps even adults get together and they have classes. They study various and sundry subjects. But on this occasion, the church had been forced to leave the other place it had been meeting, and so they made use of the school of Tyrannus. If something were to happen to this building, and some body at Tennessee Tech were favorable to us, could we as a church maybe meet in one of the building spaces on the campus of Tennessee Tech University? Sure we could. No problem with that, for they did it in Acts 19. It would appear that may well have been a rented place, a rented hall. Could the church then rent a place to assemble and to meet? Sure it could. What about a fourth possibility? We have many New Testament examples of a church that met in individual homes. I would call to your attention these. In Romans 16, verse number 5, the house of Aquila and Priscilla. The church met in their house. We find that mentioned again in 1 Corinthians 16, 19. The church assembled at their house. Could you or I perhaps open our house and maybe meet in my basement or maybe your attic or your living room? Could we do that and offer an acceptable worship to God? Sure we could. Look at other examples. In Colossians 4.15, the church that met in Nymphus's house. We don't know much about Nymphus in the New Testament, but we do know that in as much as he was an individual who opened his house that allowed the church to meet there. In Philemon, verse number 2, Philemon had a church meeting in his house. We've looked at all those examples to say this. Church met in individual homes. It met in the school of Tyrannus. It met in synagogues. Question, did God specify where the church was to meet? He didn't. He specified that it was to meet, and He gave the fullness of heaven's authority toward that end, but He did not specify where it was to meet. That apparently is one of those conclusions we reach in as much as that's left to the individual dictate of each local congregation. As you notice more thoroughly, that then would suggest that any reasonable place that does not in some way violate any of the other New Testament commandments could be an acceptable place for the church to worship. As we conclude those thoughts at least, what then should we say about a church building? One of the final thoughts of our lesson this morning. So, so far we have reasoned that we do wish to have God's authority for what we do and He has given authority for the church to have a building. Notice he didn't specify where it was to meet. That's our decision. However, there are some stipulations that surely God would include. 
as we look at these remaining verses, could I ask you to notice? In the Old Testament, it seems to me we have an interesting example. Revisit the tabernacle with me for a moment. In Exodus chapters 25 through 39, we have God giving statements about the fact they were to construct a tabernacle. He told them its dimensions. He told them what furniture to put in it. He told them how to construct it, that is to say, what metals were to be used in its construction. God specified all of that, and He was happy with it. In Exodus chapter 40, it says, His glory filled that tabernacle when they completed it. May I say to you, though, in light of that, the time did come later in the Old Testament when David and Solomon wished for there to be a permanent building, not a movable, portable one. How'd God react? Was He pleased when they built that temple? I would ask you to notice in 1 Chronicles 28 verses 11 and following, as well as 1 Kings 9 verse 3, God says, I put my name on that temple. It was exquisite. It was beautiful. It was extravagant. But the point is, God did put His name there. That was to be a place of blessing, a place where His law and His commandment was held high and respected correctly. I might suggest to you, as we come to the New Testament, we aren't interested in extravagance. We aren't interested in extreme expense. We want a functional building, a practical building, one that will simply meet the needs. We aren't interested in ornateness. The New Testament doesn't put that as an emphasis. In fact, the New Testament encourages us to be good stewards of the resources He's given us. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2. We must be if we're to please Him. As we come nearly full circle, then might I say, as you and I think about the building, think about the work that God has given the church to do. Church must evangelize. As we noted earlier, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That specifically includes this community. As noted earlier, we have reached near capacity of this building. What if there are other individuals living nearby who would like to come and worship with us? They might perhaps find it difficult. Maybe not be able to find parking. Maybe not be able to, to feel in such a way they could enjoy the service in comfort in a learning atmosphere in a worshipful attitude. We would not be doing them a service in that way. Again, we have thus contemplated a new building. One that's larger than this one, a larger auditorium. One that would thus permit a larger number of people to assemble for the purpose of worship and other activities that God would approve. Specifically, think about this matter of evangelism. I would call to your attention 1 Timothy 3.15. On that occasion, Paul specifically said, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. It is, of course, our stated commitment that this building should be used in defense of the truth. What is proclaimed from its pulpit should be a thus saith the Lord, no more and no less. What goes on in that place ought to, in fact, be such that it would bring glory and honor to the God of heaven, for that's its purpose. Not only that, 
What about edification? We as the local peeping community, our, our congregation, God has commanded we edify one another. If our building is sufficiently at capacity that this edification cannot easily take place, then there's problem and issue. Again, it's our hope that this new building will permit a greater matter of edification, not only, of course, with more comfort, but in the sense of setting before us the things of greatly encouraging a far larger sense of community, as well as the ability, of course, to worship together. Not only that, maybe you'd note this with me. As I stated earlier, it is, of course, our commitment as the Pippin Church of Christ that this new building, just like this one does, it belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to you and me. Not a one of us would claim we own it. Therefore, we want to make sure that that which takes place within it is pleasing to Him. We want to make sure that it is satisfactory to Him. No wonder then in light of that, look at those things at the bottom, please. We would never ever wish for things that would be contrary to the will of God to take place in that new facility. A homosexual marriage. That's not something that we would ever give credence to because, again, it belongs to the Lord. And God forbid there should ever be a time, perhaps years and years down the road, when the church has become weakened here to the point where that building would need to close. Maybe you and I have known of communities in which once there was a thriving and vibrant church of Christ, but no longer is it there. Maybe the people moved away. Maybe there were sufficient deaths. Maybe there were other catastrophes. But we certainly would hope that this congregation will be a thriving and powerful and strong and vibrant one until the end of time. We would hope that this new building would be a part of that work. Just like at some point in the past, some brethren saw fit to build this one. And it has now served for several decades. But now the time has come to consider a larger one that might too serve for several more decades and hopefully the time will come that one will be insufficient and there will be need to build even a bigger one. You see, the work of God is such that you and I are fellow workers with Him. As we come near the close of that slide and the close of our lesson as well, it is our desire to leave the landmarks alone. Proverbs 22, verse 28, told those in the Old Testament era, don't bother the landmarks in regard to the landmark of truth, in regard to the landmark of assembly and faithfulness and the activities of the church. It's our desire to leave the landmarks alone. It is with those thoughts in mind we close our lesson in these concluding words. Does God authorize a, a church building? He surely does a place where the church can function and work and assemble and meet and come together, a place that the work of the church could be carried out. And we're excited here at Pippin about the thoughts of this new building. The elders would ask each of us to keep it prayerfully in mind. Please be praying to God on a regular basis, not only for the construction of that building, but that it will in fact be able to be used always and constantly in a way to glorify Him. This very day, might we say this, one of the things, of course, that takes place in that building is the extending of an invitation. 
And that's something that we make sure to do every time we come together. There might be someone in this audience today that's not a faithful member of the body of Christ. I hope that our study has been one today that helps remind us about the specialness of coming together. Don't you want to come together as a servant of God? It's one thing to just come together and sit in the building, but don't you want to be a member of the family that meets in that building? I hope that you do. God wants you to be. He sent His Son so that that could be made possible. If today you're not a Christian, having never become one, why not make that right today? You've heard the gospel. Why not believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Son of God? Why not repent of your sins? Why not confess His great name? And why not be baptized for the remission of your sins? And if we could help you in that today, we'd be honored to do it. If you, however, though once a faithful Christian or not today, why not come back to your first love? The prodigal son came home, and you can too. He found himself there in the pig pen. Don't you want to come out of the pig pen of sin? Don't you want to come to the glorious place of fellowship with God? 1 John 1, 5. If we could again pray to God on your behalf, we'd be delighted to do it. And we are assured that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We're excited about this new building. And would you like to be a part of the family meets there? If you'd like to be, why not come and do it now? Well, together we stand and while we sing.